All right, good evening, everyone. Um, I'd like to do just something very quickly. Don't worry, it's not interactive. Uh, I just very, wanna, very quickly want to kind of lay out some format so we all know what's about to happen and, and how the next 10 weeks will go. Um, first off, the, this material uh, is a college-level course for a local Bible college, Calvary Chapel Bible College. In fact, hopefully there's a couple of students in the audience tonight. There better be or they're tardy. Uh, uh, and so because of that, uh, it is a two-hour class. I know that's a little bit longer than the usual Wednesday night format. Of course, if you have to leave when you have to leave, that's fine. Um, how we're going to use our time tonight is we'll split the lecture in half and I'll lecture for 50 minutes. We'll have a 10-minute break where you're welcome to use the restroom, get a drink, etc., but we'll also be taking some questions. Uh, we'll do a little Q&A. We'll do 50 minutes again, and then we'll do 10 more minutes of Q&A. Uh, the Q&A format will just have a mic and a raised hand. I know that some, uh, some questions may be a little bit more sensitive or anonymity may be important, and so we will provide uh, tonight some 3x5 cards. If you fill one of those out and fold it up, I'll deal with those in the following weeks. Um, and so, so that's the basic format for tonight. Uh, it, what we're going to do is, is 10 sessions together. There's a schedule around that you can look at. Um, but the format is really important. Um, this issue is a complex one. In fact, usually if I'm trying to talk to someone about issues of sexuality, the first question I ask them is, how much time do you have? Uh, and so what we're going to do in the first five weeks is lay a foundation, a framework, a biblical theology, if you will, of sex and gender. And in the second half, we'll get into particular issues and touch points in our lives and view them through that same framework. So those first five weeks, um, tonight we're just going to um, give ourselves a way to handle the biblical data. How do we assemble things together? We'll build a framework and then we'll use that and look at different facets, different pieces for the next four weeks. And so the three weeks following, so week two, next week, three and four, uh, we'll be looking at these three traditional aspects of sexuality that the church has talked about for hundreds of years, uh, namely the uh, erotic aspect, the unitive aspect, and the procreative aspect. Uh, and then we will talk about male and female, uh, and then once we've done that, we kind of have everything together, um, but we need all five. And so, for example, uh, we will return to Genesis 1 and 2 every single week for the next five weeks, and we will not exhaust it. Uh, but we need to come at it at different angles to, to see, if you'll imagine with me a Rubik's Cube, the entire green side and the entire blue side. And then we go, oh, look, it's starting to look like a Rubik's Cube. Okay? It's that type of an issue. So, uh, without further ado, I want to jump right in tonight. Let's just open with a word of prayer. Father, uh, we are grateful for this opportunity. We're grateful for this opportunity to study your word. We're grateful for this opportunity to ponder such essential aspects of our humanity. And we're grateful for this opportunity to uh, see how these things lead us to understand and to more rightly and fully worship you. And so we desire that you would teach us this evening, Lord, we come to your word reliant upon the promises that Jesus gave, that he would send the helper who would teach us. And so we open ourselves to that and we ask for that help in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, tonight we want to put the concepts of biblical gender and sexuality in their context. 
And what I mean by that is a couple of things. One, we need to understand what the Bible is and then run these ideas through that lens. Two, we need a framework that will help us week to week as we explore these things. And then finally, and this is really important, what's very necessary in our day and age, in fact, what I would suggest is missing, uh, is a unitive theory. Now, if you've ever read popular science magazines, unitive theories are the things that are big enough to connect all the different uh, aspects of science. Uh, and so what I'm suggesting here is that we struggle in the church to be able to consistently tie everything together on issues of sexuality. We may be familiar with borders. We may be familiar with do's and do nots, but we can't understand what it's all about. In other words, tonight we're going to focus very significantly uh, on the why of sexuality, the why of gender. I have found in myself and in talking with other Christians uh, this need within the church. Maybe you relate here with the words of Ed Setzer, who is a uh, missiologist, a guy who helps church planters. He says here, I remember going to the Disciple Now retreat at my church in junior high. The focus was sexual abstinence. I respected my youth minister and knew that he loved me, so when he started to lay out the sexual ethic, uh, the ethics of Christian sexuality, I bought in. He said, no sex before marriage. Check. I was going to wait. He said, no porn. Check. I was going to try and avoid it. He said, no staring at the girl with the voluptuous body and no sexual thoughts. Check. I was going to try my best. The trust and credibility of the youth leader played a large role in my attempt to live within biblical sexual parameters. Uh, that is my own experience growing up in the church. Uh, and that is sometimes as far as the conversation gets. But we need to understand tonight that the need for a unitive theory is not just a Christian problem. That our world right now is in a crisis and they know it that they can't agree where they should agree. And so even groups of people who are considered relatively cutting-edge progressive who are all fighting for the same liberation, end up extensively butting heads on issues of sexuality and gender due to the lack of this unitive theory. Uh, this is from um, Eleanor Burkett's New York Times article, What Makes a Woman? Eleanor Burkett is a well-known feminist author, and she's responding to when Bruce Jenner, after his transition, had that famous interview uh, uh, as Caitlyn Jenner, uh, with, uh, with Mrs. Sawyer. I, I'm sure many of you saw it a few years ago. Um, but she's responding to specifically in this quotation a couple of things that Caitlyn Jenner says during that night, including, I've always had a brain that was more female than male, as well as uh, talking about the joy of embracing his true identity as a woman. She points out that there's many aspects of the true identity of, as a woman that Bruce Jenner's never had to face, difficulties that she's never been able to escape. For example, discrimination at the job place uh, or, uh, or feeling scared as she's on her way in the dark to the car. Uh, there's an entire biological consequence that feminists have been responding to, and there's also an underlying logic of what it means to be a woman that the transgender community and the feminist community do not agree on. And so listen to her words here. By defining womanhood the way he did to Mrs. Sawyer, Mr. Jenner and the many advocates for transgender rights who take a similar tack ignore these realities, the big differences. In the process, they undermine almost a century of hard-fought arguments 
The very definition of female is a social construct that has subordinated us. And they undercut our efforts to change the circumstances we grew up with. The, quote, I was born in the wrong body, end quote, rhetoric, favored by other trans people, doesn't work any better, and is just as offensive, reducing us, she means here biological women, to our collective breasts and vaginas. Now, she continues, uh, and this is fascinating. She says, imagine the reaction if a young white man suddenly declared that he was trapped in the wrong body, and after using chemicals to change his skin pigmentation and crocheting his hair into twists, expected to be embraced by the black community. Now, why that's so interesting is because it was only a few months after this that this is actually what happened, as Rachel Dolezal, a member of the Spokane NAACP, was found not biologically to be an African-American, American, but had been posing for one for many, many years. In fact, she still identifies as a black woman, and basically her communication, her explanation is on the inside, this is who I am. Okay. Now, continuing. In January 2014, the actress, Martha Plimpton, an abortion rights advocate, sent out a tweet about a benefit for a Texas abortion funding called A Night of a Thousand Vaginas. Suddenly, she was swamped by criticism for using the word vagina. Given the constant genital policing, you can't expect trans folk to feel included by an event title focused on a policed binary genital, responded Dr. Jane Shee. When Ms. Plimpton explained that she would continue to say vagina, and why shouldn't she, given that without a vagina there is no pregnancy or abortion, her feed overflowed anew with indignation. Michelle Goldberg reported in The Nation, so you're really committed to doubling down on using a term that you've been told many times is exclusionary and harmful? asked one blogger. Miss Plimpton became, to use the new trans insult, a TERF, which stands for Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist. So, in other words, we have two very generally, by the population, presumed on the same team, progressive, pursuing the same goals, but actually fighting against one another on the big question, what is gender? Okay. That is the question, that is the struggle. Uh, now, the framework that we're going to use is the framework that the Bible uses. We need to recognize tonight that the Bible doesn't operate as a dictionary. And so if you want to study sex and gender, you can't check the index on the back and just turn to all the sex passages and go, okay, now I understand sex. That would be to neglect what the Bible is. The Bible is also not a book of virtues. And so although it's full of good and bad examples of both sexuality and gender relationships, it's not nearly that. And then finally, it's also not a rule book. Although it has rules, even divine God-given, written with the finger of God commandments in it, that's not what the Bible is. In fact, two-thirds of it is narrative. To understand what the Bible is, we need to understand that it is a single overarching story, a history, if you will, uh, and that it has a beginning, and that it has an end, and that it moves through four stages. And the four stages that I'm referring to here are classic aspects of how to explain the story of the world in a Christian viewpoint. Uh, we begin with creation. Okay? God made the world, and it was good. Okay? Then we move on to the fall. The world that we live in now because of sin uh, is broken in rebellion and cursed. Okay? So God made the world, and it was good. That's not as things are because of sin. Things are fallen and broken. Redemption, God sent Jesus to fix what was broken and save us from sin and death. And then consummation, Jesus will return 
and finish what he started, bringing God's plan to completion. Okay, and so there's a forward motion in these four phases, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And the truth is, if you open up any systematic theology or any introductory uh, course on ethics from a Christian perspective, they're probably going to engage with these categories. They're just agreed upon good summaries of the major four phases of what God is doing in history. But the reason why I like to use them is because it also appears to be the way that Jesus thinks about issues of sex and gender. And when we identify ourselves as Christians, uh, we very much value the example of Christ. In other words, what I'm suggesting you to, to you tonight is that we should read the Bible as Jesus did. And so what we're going to do specifically tonight is actually look just at how Jesus handles marriage in the Gospel of Matthew and see how he engages with these four categories. Now, it's worth pointing out here, if you joined us uh, when I was here on a Sunday morning a month ago, this will be somewhat review, except I did that in 35 minutes. Actually, I'll be honest. I think I did that in 48 minutes, maybe 55. Uh, but we'll double our time. We'll slow down. We'll get a little deeper tonight. Uh, it'll be a good review anyways. But again, I want to point out that as we look at these passages, we're not actually going to talk about marriage. What we're interested in is how Jesus talks about marriage. What we're interested in is a tool that we can use for our own way to, again, assemble the data and understand not just the construct or the boundaries of a biblical sexual ethic, but sexuality in a theological sense. What is it all about? All right, so to do so, I want to look at Matthew 19 to get us started. All right. This is relatively late into Jesus's ministry throughout the area of Israel. Uh, in fact, in this place, it's moving towards Jerusalem. And this is past the place where Jesus has started to explain his disciples that he's on his way to Jerusalem to die. Okay. In the midst of that, as we see here in verse 1, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee, that was his home area around the Sea of Galilee, and entered into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, okay? And so notice here his reputation has grown, large crowds are growing, but so has the animosity against Jesus. And some of the enemies that we encounter in the gospel against Jesus are the conservative religious leaders of Israel known as the Pharisees. The Pharisees were committed to the Old Testament scriptures. They were committed to keeping the 613 commandments as they counted them. Uh, they were committed to maintaining a broad Jewish social ethic, not just for their own lives, but policing it for Israel for the good of all. Okay? Here, they come and they ask Jesus a question about divorce. But notice it says here that they tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one wife for any cause? That word there, tested, is significant. It tells us that the Pharisees aren't ultimately interested in Jesus' opinion. They're not seeking him out just because he's a popular rabbi and they want to know what he has to say. They want to trip him up. They want to trap him. They're trying to get him either to put his foot into his mouth or between a rock and a hard place. Uh, they want him to, uh, you know, be stuck, if you will, with a 7-10 split in front of these crowds that have gathered, okay? 
Um, and so they ask a question about what was in that day and is in our day a hot topic, controversial issue. What are the appropriate grounds for divorce? But remember, as they do so here, when they say, is it lawful, this is not a question about civil law. The question is not, is it legal to do this in the nation of Israel or in the empire of Rome? Their question is, does this align with the law of Moses? Okay. They're interested in the religious ethics of the Jews. What, again, are the biblical grounds for divorce? And notice how Jesus responds. He answered, have you not read? Now pause. If you read the Gospels fully, Jesus is often asked questions by friends and critics. It's amazing how often he answers beginning in the same way. Haven't you read? What do the scriptures say? How do you read them? You err, he says in another place, not knowing the power of God or the scriptures. How do you interpret the law? This is a constant refrain in Jesus' conversation. It is his instinct to answer questions by saying, what does the Bible say? Okay. But notice, he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So he gives a relatively full answer here that both has a therefore, a conclusion, and the grounds for that conclusion. What's surprising is the grounds that he draws avoids the context that the question was set in. When the Pharisees ask, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause, they're saying, how do you read Deuteronomy chapter 24? Because it's in Deuteronomy chapter 24 that it says, if a man finds any uncleanness in his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And so they're curious about a word study. How do you interpret that word uncleanness? In fact, in the days of Jesus's life, there were two popular rabbis who had kind of solidified the two general positions on this. There was Rabbi Hillel, and Rabbi Hillel said this speaks only of forms of sexual unfaithfulness, infidelity, and sexual immorality. And then there was a much more liberal position from Rabbi Shammai, which said anything that a husband does not like about his wife is grounds for divorce, including, according to his students, including finding another woman to be more desirable than her. Okay? Which actually, I would say, kind of sets the gamut for our own modern questions about divorce. So what they're asking is, how do you read Deuteronomy? And he rightly says, how do you read the scriptures? And then he pivots and he says, but not Deuteronomy. Let's talk about Genesis. Okay. So not only, uh, not only does Jesus here want to go to the scriptures for answers, but he goes to a passage and not the one the Pharisees were thinking about. Here's the logic of what we read right here. Effectively, this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying you cannot understand divorce until you understand marriage. So net, let's not ask about what are the right grounds for divorce until we say, what's marriage about? Okay. And you can't understand marriage, if we follow Jesus' example here, unless we go back to creation, unless we begin at the beginning. Okay. Now we'll come back to that, but let's go ahead and finish the passage so we see the whole framework here. They ask then, after Jesus responds... Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Sound familiar? Why Deuteronomy 24 then? If what God has joined together, let no man put asunder, why does Moses give the opportunity? Why, how do you 
read Deuteronomy 24 in light of Genesis. Okay. And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. You see that? That shows us that he's not just going to Genesis because it's his, uh, his best defense, but there's something about that idea of from the beginning. From the beginning it was not so. And he continues, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Now, here the disciples come to Jesus and they go, if it's that rigid, if it's so high stakes, both let what God has joined together, let no man asunder, and then anyone who divorces his wife commits adultery in his next marriage, unless there's sexual immorality already in the table, they go, maybe we shouldn't get married? Now, in our day and age, where marriage as an institution is on the decline, especially among the younger generations, that doesn't hit you with the force that it should. Remember that these are first century Jewish young men. First century Jewish young men who believe that it is the destiny of all men to become husbands and therefore fathers. In fact, I mentioned earlier the Pharisees' 613 commandments. The first one on their list is also the first one we found in, find in the Bible. Be fruitful and multiply. The rabbis believed that if you had not yet accomplished that, you were not yet fully, truly righteous. Okay? It was required of all Jewish male to have children. So to hear them say, maybe it's better not to get married, is profoundly countercultural. In fact, most commentators are so struck by that fact, they suggest here, you know what's really going on? The disciples are trying to get Jesus to ease up a little bit. They're trying to push the logic, and they go, you, you can't possibly mean what you said, because if you do, this would be the conclusion. We all know that's ridiculous, okay? Um, but notice that Jesus doubles down. He says, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those to whom it is given. And then he talks about people who will be presumably single for the rest of their life. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who's able to receive it, receive it. Now we'll come back to this passage later. But that's the whole story. Okay? That's where we want to start tonight. And I want to go back to this initial idea that Jesus says if we're going to begin to talk about issues of sexuality, we have to go back to Genesis. Specifically, we have to go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Here, in the very beginning, Jesus does two things. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? That is an illusion. He's alluding to Genesis 1, 26, 27, and 28. In the image of God, he made them male and female. And then he quotes from Genesis 2, 24, the next chapter. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But what these two verses have in common is they're both heavily set in the creation narrative, the very beginning. So, so not even in a sense uh, is it just that it's the first thing that happened, but it's built into this broader reality of the first thing God did. Not just the first thing Adam and Eve did, the first thing God did, which is that he created. Okay? Now, what happens when we go back to Genesis and follow Jesus' model here and look at sex and gender and creation. It's actually very interesting. So here, he says twice, you can see in the little red boxes there, from 
the beginning. So let's take a look. First off here in Genesis chapter 1. Okay. Genesis chapter 1 lays out the creation of the world over the course of six days, followed by a day of rest. And there's a, a discernible pattern in the days of creation. There's a structure to it. The pattern is consistent. It starts with, and God said, let there be blank. And then whatever the blank was, was. And then God saw whatever the blank was, and it was good. So he speaks, it becomes, and then he assesses and stamps it and says it is good. Okay. That pattern is repeated. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five. In fact, it's repeated on day six with the creation of land animals. But then we get to the creation of man and woman, and the pattern breaks down. Notice it almost starts the same. Then God said, let us, not let there be. He doesn't say, let there be humans, and there was humans. Instead, he says, let us make man, mankind there, humankind, in our image after our likeness. It's helpful to think of this as being as if the creation narrative was acted out on stage. Okay. So every act so far, this voice speaks into the darkness and then things become. But what we get here is like conversation behind the scenes. Right? It's not actually moving the story forward. It's a conversation. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so one distinction here, one thing that is new, one thing that breaks the pattern is that God stops to explain what he's about to do, to talk about it with himself. The second is it says that he's going to do something new in the fact that he's going to create human beings in his image, after his likeness. Now, there are correlations between all of God's creation and himself as creator. So for example, the first day, God says, let there be light, and there was light, and the Bible goes on to say, you know what? God is light. There's a connection between those two things. Not only that, but all of creation was made to the glory of God. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth, his handiwork, right? It puts on display the goodness of God, but this is different. Let us make human beings in our image, uh, but what we want to notice here first is that after giving them dominion over the rest of creation, in other words, human beings are the pinnacle of creation, uh, we get this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Okay, so the words in Hebrew, much like the words in older English, man and man can mean separate things. We can talk about mankind and we can talk about an individual man, and we can talk about the male gender. Okay. Hebrew works the same way. And so I would suggest a better way to read this verse is, so God created humans in his own image. In the in image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. It's not that one of the humans isn't male. It's just more than that. What God does here is more than that. But more importantly, what is this? It's gender. It's biological sex. And it is the first thing we're told about the creation of man and woman, and somehow it's tied to what it means to be in the image of God. Okay, we'll come back to that. Uh, but here we see gender, and then what's the next thing? And, uh, oh, darn it, I didn't keep this one in there. I'll read it to you, even though it's blurred out. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Okay, Genesis 1.27, male and female. 1.28, be fruitful and multiply. What's that? That's sex. The very first things we see as soon as humans are introduced as a concept, 
It's gender and sexuality, right off the bat. Okay. So a couple of things here. First, we see that sex is created. Sex and gender are created. Now, if you've grown up in the church, that's probably not really a surprising idea. Um, but in the ancient Near East context that the Bible was written in, it's surprisingly unique. If you read the creation myths of the nations around Israel, Mesopotamia, Babylon, the Canaanites, etc., Phoenicia, Egypt, in all of them, both gender and sex are pre-existing divine realities. There are gods who are both male and female. And through their sexual relations, in fact, in most of the stories, that's where all of this comes from. But here, sex and gender are human things created by God. Not only that, but sex is good. Sex and gender are created here, and then when God creates man and woman, male and female, be fruitful and multiply, God saw all of that that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Okay. And so here, these two ideas come together, creation and goodness. We'll come back to that in just a second, but I want to add one last piece here. When we move on to Genesis chapter 2, we get a new facet. I always think of Genesis chapter 2 like you're working in a 7th grade science lab. And you've got that microscope. And it's got the 10 time zoom and the 100 time zoom. right? And when you switch, you're looking at the same slide. But you're looking at it closer. That's how Genesis 1 and 2 function. Genesis 1 tells the broad story of the creation of all things. Genesis 2 zooms in and tells us the specifics of the creation of mankind. And so in Genesis 2, it's not let us make man and woman in our image, but God made a single male individual named Adam and placed him in a garden. But also notice that the pattern is screwed up here as well. Then the Lord God said, he creates Adam, this isn't good, it's not good. Now I would suggest to you that that's not just God's resonation with how mothers feel about their bachelor sons. The idea is not, uh oh, that's not good. The idea of goodness here and throughout all of creation is that it's incomplete. God has designed man and woman in the image of God. We'll come back to that still. But Adam can't do that on his own. The image is incomplete. God's purpose for Adam, be fruitful and multiply, is dead in the water. Because it's not good that man should be alone. So he'll make a helper suitable for him. And so he creates Eve out of his side. Uh, and that brings us to very good. Now, these ideas, sex and gender are created, sex and gender are good. I find these words here from David Pallison to be helpful. If you had been one of Israel's ancient neighbors, you would have learned a starkly different creation narrative. Knowing how you got here and what your role is may have been described like this. A fierce battle occurred between two gods. The victor took the defeated god's body and broke it into pieces, using it to make the earth. Then he used the blood to form the people. And why did the gods make the people? Because the gods don't like working. They get hungry and need to be served and fed. Your duty, your destiny as a human being, is to be their slave. You exist to feed, support, and nourish the gods. You must do this work, they do not, the work that they do not care to do, or else. In this version of creation, you do not bear the image of the gods. You only serve their arbitrary demands. Since you become like what you worship, you do, in a curious way, bear their image. You, like them, are degraded self-serving, and your sexuality reflects that. This holds out such a different picture from the dignity of God's story. It's hopeless, futile, and void of love. 
any narrative other than the biblical one shares this fundamental flaw. In other words, what's unique about the Christian vision is that we can say sex is created and sex is good. That's not just a problem for the ancient world, it's also a problem for the modern world. He continues, the modern narrative tends to be a biological narrative. You were a slave to your evolved sexual instincts. The old polytheistic myths have been replaced by a libidinal myth. You and others exist to serve the imperatives of your lusts. But if you believe you were born to be a slave, then you're unable to hope for anything different and better. Slavery is your identity and destiny. Perhaps the creation stories of Israel's neighbors offered some fatalistic comfort as they lived at the mercy of the elements and cruel despots. Since they experienced slavery, their story helped them to simply accept it. Perhaps the creation stories of our neighbors over us offer a similar fatalistic comfort, planting us body and soul into the soil of our sins and mis miseries. In other words, at the very least, they can say this is just the way things are. All myths are dehumanizing, but the God in whose image you are made humanizes you. He calls you to turn away from a life of slavery. He calls you to faith, to hope, and love. He restores the dignity and wholeness of his image bearers. Okay. And so Pallison helpfully reminds us of how this, uh, how this idea is significant here. And notice this as well, this logic of beginning with creation he points to here. Knowing that the real story includes what's right about sex helps us to rethink our own stories, even when, especially when, that story is filled with sexual brokenness. The God who created us to be free meets us in our slaveries, sets us free in his service. Okay. So this idea that, uh, that sex and gender are created and that God labeled them good is the place we have to start because we all know in practice that's not always true. Is that where it has to be? Is that where it was destined to be? Is that by design? In fact, design is the most significant part. Sex and gender are created. Sex and gender are good. Sex and gender have a purpose. Okay. That's implied by the idea of a creator. God didn't just create for no reason, but with intention. God is a designer, not merely a creator. And I would suggest to you that the world is far from abstract art. There's an intention in it. There's a purpose. Okay? And for, for what we see in Genesis, the purpose of humanity, whatever it means to be the image of God, is directly touching these ideas of sex and gender. And that means it gives our sexuality as a whole purpose. Okay? Now this is really important. Because when we look here at Genesis 1.26 again, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That's a statement of purpose. It doesn't tell us just what God's about to do, but how he's going to do it and what he's trying to accomplish. The idea of the image of God explains not just our humanity, but somehow our connection to the purpose that God has designed us for. Now, as we move on and we see these things, what are we talking about when we talk about the image of God? Okay. What does it mean when it says that male and female were created in the image of God? Throughout the history of the church, there's been basically three views, and they all have something valuable to teach us. The first is the substantive view, okay? that there's something in substance that's like God in humanity. For example, God is a creator. So we as human beings are creative. God is rational, 
and so we utilize reason. Okay? Uh, this view, oftentimes in its classical expression, is what sets us apart from the animals. Animals are instinctual and impulsive and work from a different place. But what makes humans different is the same things we think about God being in his personhood. Okay? Um, and so we are like God in our nature. The functional view says we are like God in our role. Okay? God has created us to rule and reign as his representatives on his behalf. Now if we go back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that's right there in the context. Because as soon as God creates them in the image, he gives them a mission. He says, let them have dominion over everything that's been created. In fact, more importantly than that, what an image was in the ancient world was a representation of power. Okay? And so this is true of the gods. You, know, you may have had an image of Baal or an image of Ashtoreth in the ancient Near East. Uh, in fact, when it says that we're not to have any or we're not to worship any created image, it's the same word used here in Genesis 1.26. In fact, I would suggest to you that what's so foolish about making a statue representation of God is that it falls short and he's already made one. It's you. Okay. Um, but the functional view recognizes the fact that we in some way have a destiny to do God's business on earth. He is the sovereign ruler, but we rule as deputy authorities on his behalf. And like I said, that's right in the context. The last one is the relational view. And this begins about a century ago with a German thinker by the name of Karl Barth, with a little silent H at the end of that, Karl Barth. Uh, Karl Barth said, maybe it's better to understand the image of God in that little pronoun at the beginning of Genesis 1.26, let us. In other words, he suggests that the image of God is shown in the fact that we as human beings are made for relationship with each other and with God, and that's essential in imaging God because God is relational. God is community. God is triune. Eternally, Father, Son, Spirit in love and in community. And so God creates people, and relationship is an essential part of what that means conceptually. In fact, when God looks at Adam and says, it's not good that man should be alone, do you see how the image of us is limited by the one? I would suggest to you that all three of these views bring to the table real realities, but we can summarize them all with this helpful quotation from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. The fact that man is in the image of God means that man is like God and is called to represent him. Okay. It's not just that you have a likeness to God, you have a purpose to image him. The goal of your life lived out on the pages of history, on the face of the earth, is to reflect who God is, to put on display who God is. In fact, I would suggest to you tonight that this is the baseline reality behind all Christian ethics. For Christians, all ethics are symbolical ethics. We do what we do, or we don't do what we don't do, because God is who he is. In fact, consider the constant refrain in the Old Testament, the call to Israel, be holy because I am holy. Right? And so this idea of image of God brings us to this idea of purpose. And as we will see throughout this, every night, issues of sex and gender, when rightly understood, explain to us who God is and the relationship he desires to have with human beings. It's a window into a deeper reality. Okay? Now... When we're talking here about the image of God, you can actually trace this through creation, fall, redemption, consummation. 
that language of being created in God's image occurs the whole place there. Now, I don't know if the references are big enough for you to read, um, so I'm just going to run through them really quickly. We've already seen it in creation. God created them in his image. But when we get to Genesis 9 and God condemns murder, why does he do it? He says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed, for God made him in his image. What is so inherently wrong about murder? That you're messing with the reflection of God himself. And one who has the dignity of being an image bearer of God and the destiny of playing that out. James tells us something similar in the New Testament when he says, how is it that we can bless God with our mouths and curse human beings with the same mouth even though they're created in his image? When we get to redemption, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And not only that, but he comes and becomes human and carries that image rightly, untarnished by the fall, unbent by sin, fully living out a perfect representation of his father and being able to say like he does in the Gospel of John, I always do the things that please my father. I do the things that I see my father does. But not only that, but listen to this. This is out of Colossians as well. Us, we have, in Christ, put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of the creator. In other words, the more Jesus makes us like him, the closer we get to our initial destiny of rightly imaging God. Okay? We see the same thing in the consummation, and I'll just give you one reference here in 1 Corinthians 15. So here Paul is talking about this reality of this up-and-coming resurrection, the destiny of all Christians. And listen to what he says. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So this image of God, creation, fall, redemption, it runs through the whole thing, but ultimately it ties us into purpose, and this is important. Because what this suggests is when we look at the modern sexual ethic, this is how it works. It begins with desire. What is it that you want? And then it's boundaried or policed or maintained by consent. Do you have permission to have what you want? Okay. Now, this is the baseline sexual ethic of our modern times. It's autonomous, starts with your desires and your wants, and then it's protective of other autonomous beings by boundering it by consent. The problem is that it doesn't work. It's too simple of a tool for too complex of a problem. Uh, for us as Christians, though, we begin with design. We always ask the question, Okay, if this was a made institution, if this was a made reality, if sexuality is a gift of God, both being created and good, then what's its design? And then because of that, asking that question, then we boundary it by, does this fulfill that purpose? Now again, this is common sense of how we describe what things are. When you open up your drawer in the kitchen and you find you know, that uh, kitchen tool that your spouse bought without you knowing on late night sales television, you don't know what it is. Why don't you know what it is? Because you don't know what it's for. Okay, the two go together. And the danger for us as Christians is by just focusing on the boundaries and not understanding the moral logic that gets us there, by not beginning at the beginning with design, we also have a tendency to misrepresent, to misinterpret, to misapply. Okay, and so we have to begin at creation. And I want to say tonight that this is not just Jesus' instinct, although it clearly is. Going back to Matthew 19, I want you to look very closely at his words from Genesis again. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? 
Now first, very clearly here, and you can see this in the Gospel of Mark chapter 10, the parallel of this passage as well, Jesus connects sex and gender right here. Why does he bring up male and female in the context of divorce? He does. He does. Okay? But more importantly, we need to notice the connection between the first statement, this allusion to Genesis 127, and the statement in the quotations there, Genesis 2.24. Genesis 2.24 opens with, therefore. If you were to go back and read Genesis 2.23, that's when Eve is brought to Adam, and Adam says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. He says, finally, a suitable helper. Finally, someone like me. He receives Eve, and then we get, therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is the word therefore implies purpose. It just is on its own. It tells us why things are the way they are, okay? But more importantly here, who is the speaker of this therefore, according to Jesus? If we were just reading the passage in Genesis, we might read it and go, well, did Adam say that? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman. And then he adds an explanation, a prophetic pronouncement, for example. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Is it our narrator? Is it Moses who's telling the story and then uses this therefore to explain something bigger? According to Jesus, there's a deeper truth here. The therefore is divine. God, the one who made them male and female, said therefore. The designer speaks to the design. In other words, Adam and Eve is not just a wedding that happened one time. It's the prototype. It's paradigmatic. It shows the design. It's the blueprint, okay? But Jesus isn't the only one who has this instinct in the New Testament, in fact, in the whole Bible, to ask the question first, how was it in the beginning? Look here. This is Paul. 1 Corinthians. Here in chapter 6, he's dealing with men who are frequenting prostitutes. He's dealing with uh, casual sex. But notice what he says. Do you not know that he who's joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Do you see the pattern again? Jesus said we can't talk about divorce until we talk about marriage. We can't talk about marriage without talking about Genesis 2. Paul says we can't talk about prostitution until we talk about marriage. And we can't talk about marriage until we talk about Genesis 2. Here, just a few chapters later, when he's talking about uh, gender expression how men and women represent themselves in their clothing, in the gathering of the church. Granted, this is a hard passage. Uh, there's a lot more to be said here, but all I want you to see tonight is the moral logic. He says, For a man not ought to cover his head, since he is the image of glory in God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman. What is that? It's Genesis chapter 2. But woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Adam was alone. It was not good. He needed Eve. He was incomplete. Eve was created to complete whatever was incomplete there. Later on again, this is where he's talking about appropriate behavior when the church gathers between the genders. Also, a difficult passage, one I promise you we will deal with later, but we don't have time tonight. Again, I just want you to notice the instinct, the gut reaction. The woman should keep silent in the churches for they're not per permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. Now, I've been studying the Bible, including the Old Testament, for well over 12 years now. I've also read plenty of commentators who have been doing it for a lot longer and reading commentators who collectively have been trying to understand this verse for 2,000 years. We cannot find any place in the Old Testament where it says that women should be in submission. So it's clear here that Paul's reference 
is to Genesis. That he sees something significant about, and again, we'll come back and talk about this, about the creation of man and woman that leads to this understanding. And we will see that that is the case. Here in 1 Timothy, again, talking about women, and particularly in the pastoral role, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach her to exercise authority over a man whether she's to remain quiet, because Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And it's not just here, but even in Galatians. Now, one of the things that's happening in the church right now is there's this big expression that says, hey, can we stop talking about gender? Because in Jesus, gender doesn't matter. And this is the passage that they turn to. They turn to Galatians chapter 3 here. It says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, there are essential truths there that we will deal with, and they are essential truths about gender. But notice Paul again goes to Genesis. Notice it's Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, and then it's no male and female. Two things. One, he doesn't say man and woman, which would be the general way that you would express yourself in these ways. Why does he say male and female? Second, he doesn't say or, but and, which breaks the whole cadence of his sentence. It's because he is using the exact Greek translation language from the Septuagint, Paul's Bible, of Genesis 1.27. Even this understanding, he wants to tie to the male and female in their creative design. Okay? Um, here's probably the most important one from Paul. Here he's talking about husbands and wives and their behaviors in marriage. He makes a comparison between a husband and his wife and Christ and the church. What I want to draw your attention to is near the end of the passage here, where he gives his reason and again quotes Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Same verse we've been hitting over and over again. But notice what he adds here. He says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, understand what Paul is doing. He is not saying, You know what's a good picture of Jesus and the church? Marriage. He's saying, you know that verse in Genesis 24, that 2.24, that great therefore that God presides over and speaks over? It's not really about man and woman. It's about Christ and the church. That's the image of God. Paul says it's not just about how men and women get along. It's about something bigger. And he does it in this context of image. So this is the idea of creation. It involves design. It involves this call to rightly reflect who God is and the relationship he desires to have with us. And we'll return to that every week. That will be our impulse, just as we've seen. Uh, as a side note, I don't know why it's not in my slides, but Malachi in the Old Testament does the same thing. When he talks about divorce, he says, didn't God make them one in their union? How does he know that God made them one? Genesis 2. So we've looked at creation... And we've spent most of the time there because it's that significant. But one of the things we need to understand is we can't stop there. That the truth is, none of us lives in Genesis 1 and 2. Right? And so, for example, Genesis 2 ends this way. Adam and Eve are created, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Therefore, a man shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then the final verse of Genesis chapter 2 says, And they were both naked and unashamed. That's not generally our experience with issues of gender and sexuality. Shame is a significant part of our context and our conveying. In fact, I would suggest if you remove the possibility of alcohol, 
naked and unashamed is probably not a category at all. Okay. In other words, something changed, and that brings us to the fall. What happens is Adam and Eve uh, rebelliously choose their own way, sin against God's one command to not eat of the tree, and because of that, we see all of these consequences that are life as we know it. Those consequences touch not just ourselves, but the people around us, the world that we live in, etc. In fact, we can see uh, the brokenness, if you will, even in the Genesis story itself. And so here, uh, look at broken relationships. Uh, first, let's begin, sorry, let's begin with Jesus again. Okay. First off, Jesus starts and he says, hey, from the beginning it was this way. And they ask an appropriate question. Why is divorce allowed at all? If that's the design, then why does Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Now, obviously here, when Moses was penning the book of Genesis, he doesn't have these particular handful of men in the first century near Judea in mind. And he goes, someday there's going to be some hard-hearted people asking a question so I'm going to write this verse in Deuteronomy, right? When he says, because of your hardness of heart there, it's a much broader pronoun than just his current audience. He means because of humanity's hardness of hearts. That's the fall. He's saying there's something wrong with human beings, and therefore this necessary evil or this avoidance of a greater evil, that is this permission for divorce, must exist. Um, not only do we see the fall in Jesus' words here, but when the disciples come back and they say, but this means that it's better not to marry, and he responds, he gives examples that also evoke this idea of the fall. A eunuch here in the ancient world is somebody who was usually a prisoner of war, who was castrated and put into service of the king. Now to be clear here, because we're so overly Hollywood sexualized, Eunuchs are not a way to keep people out of the king's harem. It's not about sexuality at all in that sense. It's about children. Because by castrating a eunuch, his only security in his old age is the king. And because by castrating a eunuch, his only legacy is the king's legacy. Okay? It's a way of securing devotion so there's no other interest for the future. Okay? But here, notice the way Jesus evokes eunuchs speaks of the fall. And so he says there's eunuchs who have been so from birth. Now Jesus isn't making up a category here. He's, he's using a well-known Jewish category, what the Jews called uh, eunuchs of the sun. Okay? The idea being that some people, as soon as they're out in the light of day and born, it's clear that they are not biologically aligned for the destiny of marriage. Okay? In today's world, we would call them intersex people. We would say that they have uh, issues of sexual development. Okay? And Jesus said there's eunuchs who have been so from birth. And then he says there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. What is that? That's oppression. We don't just live in a world and you're a hard-hearted person, but you live in a world with hard-hearted people. And so some people are cut off from the possibility of God's design for marriage by the behavior and treatment of others. Significantly, this is uh, essential for understanding divorce. In fact, this is a little high stakes, uh, and we won't get to it until week 10. 
But as we look at divorce in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, it's not seen as a prerogative of men to be a right that's given to men. It sees it as a sin of men to be legislated against to protect women. It tries to restrain the treatment of women. Okay. And then also, he says, those who are made themselves eunuchs for the sake of kingdom of heaven. Now, we'll come back to that because that's amazing. Here he takes this example of people whose destiny is not for God's design, and he makes it a model of discipleship. He says there's also going to be people who choose for the kingdom not to take God's original path for marriage. Not only that, but in doing so, he holds up a relatively despised class of people. The Jews looked down on eunuchs because, as I told you earlier, procreation was such a significantly important part. Even the book of Deuteronomy says if your testicles are crushed, or if you've been castrated, you're not allowed in the assembly of the Lord's people. And here Jesus says, you should be like a eunuch. That'd be good for the kingdom of God. It's of value, it's of worth. But again, Jesus' instinct is, this was the beginning. It's not where things are. Okay, that's the fall. But again, we see this all the way back in Genesis itself. One of the ways we see it is in broken relationships. Again, look at... Um, the words that Adam speaks over his wife here, Eve. The man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That's language of intimacy. He takes ownership of Eve, like me, from my body. But after the fall, he speaks again over Eve, and this is what he says. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave of the fruit of the tree, and I ate. He distances himself from Eve. In fact, he objectifies her as just being the implementation of his temptation. Right? This is the breakdown of relationships that we see. We don't just see it there, but in the, when the curse is given to the woman, the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Okay, And so be fruitful and multiply. That's the design. But the fall makes this a painful reality. And to be clear here, the word there for childbearing is not just talking about, you know, the 24 to 48 hours of labor or even the nine months that precede it. It's talking about child rearing. Now, raising up kids in the image of God is hard because they're little sinners. Okay? In fact, notice it's not just that relationship, but he says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, we don't have time to do this, but I do not like the ESV's handling of that verse. And it's not because it's not a possible rendering of it. It's just because it's not a good understanding of how we translate things. Okay? It's bad practice. So instead, let me suggest to you, your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. The point here is there's now strain in the marital relationship. Okay? And that's what the ESV means when it says here there's a battle for who's in charge. I would suggest that's not the idea of this verse, and we'll talk about that later. But still, when it says, but he shall rule over you, that's not an appropriate response. Your desire would be for your husband and his desire is for you. That's the plan. But instead, he will dominate you. In other words, right here, we see a breakdown between the genders, male and female, and it leads to oppression. The CDC, two years ago, released a report that said 55% of female homicides are caused by their intimate partners. Right here, there's a recognition of that breakdown in human relationships. And it doesn't stop there, does it? Because Adam and Eve have two young boys, Cain and Evil, and the first thing that happens next is that Cain kills his brother. 
It's a breakdown of relationship. It's a breakdown of the family. It's not just relational, though. We also get a broken environment. And so, again, we see that here in Genesis, especially uh, with the woman. You know, when it says that now her childbearing is going to be painful, it means the physicality of her life now has hardship. And we saw this with Jesus. When he mentions the eunuch who has been born that way, or if we talk about infertility, these are all part of the environmental factors that you have no control over, the things that you're just born into. And that's part of what the fall is. Okay? Um, we also see it, of course, in the curse of Adam. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you should not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. The ground that he was supposed to till, the ground that he was supposed to rule over, now fights back. It won't yield the way it's supposed to. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring it forth for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. And then interestingly enough, it goes, and you will return to the dust. That's where Adam came from. The ground wins. Okay, That's the fall. Sexual dysfunction, like I said, born eunuchs is part of this category. But also, we're talking uh, about infertility, uh, and then I think this is the most helpful passage Romans 8.20 here says, for creation, right, that's the category we started with, was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So what is the world we live in right now? It's futile, it's enslaved, and it's decaying, it's corrupt. In other words, part of what we mean when we talk about the fall are hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes and all of these things. It's as if Paul says the whole earth is in groaning, in turmoil, awaiting its redemption, which is bound up in our redemption. Okay? But also we have broken humans. Okay? This is Romans 3, 9 through 18. And the reason I'm not using my fancy version, you know, where the passage scrolls and highlights and stuff, is because I want to show you what Paul does here. Paul here is in a point in the book of Romans where he's trying to explain that everyone on earth, Jew or Gentile, needs a savior because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what he does here is to prove his point, he makes a rapid fire list of quotations from across the Old Testament and just strings them together, machine guns his evidence, exhibit A through Z. But he does so with intention and with order and with organization. And so he says here, what then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin as it was written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. And then he finishes with, there is no fear of God before their eyes. But the quotations are organized. And the organization tells us two things. First, in this first half, the repeated language is none, not one, no one, no one, all, together they've become, no one, not even one. All of the quotes he picks at first have to do with the inclusive reality that nobody escapes this. All have sinned. No one is an exception, okay? In other words, the first half of this verse says that we are all fallen. 
Second part, though, he turns and he starts using body metaphors. Look, he refers to the throat, the tongues, the lips, the mouth, their feet, and their eyes. In other words, he gives us a head-to-toe diagnosis of the fall. Now, obviously, he's being metaphorical here. We've already talked about the environmental factor that our bodies don't work as they should. But more significantly here, the idea is that not only are we all fallen, but we're all thoroughly fallen. It doesn't mean that you're the worst person you could possibly be. It means that the fall touches every aspect of you morally. Which means, for our purpose tonight, that when we talk about sexual dysfunction, we should all raise our hands. Okay? Your sexuality is touched by the fall. It's tainted by the fall. Not once, since the naked and unashamed of Genesis 2, has there been two people who have lived out fully God's purpose for sexuality and gender. And that's incredibly significant for us, okay? Uh, because it does a couple of things. For one, many of you lived through and remember the purity movement of the 1990s, an emphasis by the church to try and maintain and regain a sexual ethic in the church, primarily through vows and promises. Now, that thing is full of mistakes. Just for example... It put a tremendous emphasis on women protecting their purity as opposed to teaching men to control themselves, which is clearly where the problem is. But more importantly, they were theologically off base to begin with because the Bible doesn't see any of those little junior hires as sexually pure. We put an overemphasis on virginity, which the Bible does not, and forgot the fact that everybody starts in need of redemption. That we start from a place of brokenness and what Jesus does and he comes in and fixes that. And so we sent even kids who had been virgins their entire life into marriage expecting that their relationship was going to be perfect. That there'd be no amount of selfishness in the bedroom. Right? That these things wouldn't be corrupted and twisted to their own, own ends. When of course they always are. And if you're married or if you've been sexually active in your life or even if you've desired those things and haven't come to them to pass, you know that's an oversimplification. It also means that we can't point our finger without pointing back at ourselves. We need to speak to our culture as sexual sinners who need Jesus for our sexual sins. This corruption, in fact, uh, makes up the vice list of the New Testament. Okay? But what I want you to notice here is how these vices, these bad behaviors, are rooted in who we are. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He says, these are the earthly things. This is the hand you were dealt. This is what comes naturally to you. Okay. Here in Galatians. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry. He makes the whole list here. But what does he call them? The works of the flesh. Now, if you've been around the church for a while, we recognize the flesh here is not merely talking about the physical self, but this sin nature that we have. But it's still you. And so when it says here, the works of the flesh, we can read this as your natural works. This is as you are in and of yourself. And that may be in juxtaposition to a different person who sins differently. It may be at different parts and ways in your life, but apart from Jesus, this is who you are. This is what's earthly in you. This is what's fleshly in you. Jesus helps us to really dial this in here in, this, uh, in Matthew verse 15, uh, chapter 15. He says, what comes out of the mouth 
proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. The greatest danger in your life morally is not somewhere out there. It's right here. It's out of the heart that these things come. For the Jew, for the New Testament as well, the heart is the core of who you are. It's where your will is. It's where your intentions are. It's where your imagination is. It's where your desires are. And Jesus says there's a constant flow of stuff coming out of you, but it starts there. Okay. We're corrupted all the way down to the desires um, this is Janelle William Paris, very interesting book, The End of Sexual Identity, where she argues that this idea of sexual orientation as an aspect of identity is misguided. It's just a bad way to think. But notice what she says here. She says, a pervasive biblical theme, however, is that human desire is fickle, a mystery even to ourselves. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10 is helpful. The heart is hopelessly dark and deceitful, a puzzle that no one can figure out, but I, God, search the heart and examine the mind. I get to the heart of the human. I get to the root of things. I treat them as they really are, not as they pretend to be. We are known by God more truly than we will ever know ourselves. And even when living righteously, we, like Paul, find ourselves wanting things we don't want to want and doing things we don't want to do. Desire is not a trustworthy indicator of human identity. Sam Albury a same-sex attracted celibate Christian says the same thing. He says, desire for things God has forbidden are a reflection of how sin has distorted me, not how God has made me. Okay, And we're going to come back to this idea because there's an implication we should draw from that. But first, this also means that we can take relatively good things in life and use them for selfish ends. Okay, As we will see, sexuality and gender is inherently designed to draw us into relationships but we are fully capable of making it all about ourselves. In fact, uh, with pornography and the imagination and masturbation, we can actually cut ourselves off from relationship and seek self-sufficiency apart from human interaction and move in the opposite direction. Okay? And then, of course, there's idolatry. So selfishness takes good things God has made and turns them to our own ends, where we're the master of our domain and we're the center of the universe. Idolatry elevates them to being the most significant thing in all life. And so now, right sexual fulfillment or these types of things becomes the one essential trait of the good life. Or of the thing that I'm afraid of losing. Or of the thing that determines if my life is comedy or tragedy. Tim Keller calls the viewpoint that our world has of the search for the one, this romantic idea, he calls it apocalyptic romance. Right? Because what determines if the world comes to an end or happily ever after? Do you find her? Do you find the one? Right? That's idolatry. It takes good things that God has made to be enjoyed and makes them ultimate things, things of worship and significance. Okay? But what I'm suggesting to you is when we rightly understand that the world we live in is not as it should be, it means that we can't, we can't rely on what is to be a determinant of what should be. Um, Chesterton here, one of my heroes, listen to what he says. He says, the moment sex ceases to be a servant, it becomes a tyrant. There's something dangerous and disproportionate in its place in human nature for whatever reason, and it does really need a special purification and dedication. 
The modern talk about sex being free, like any other sense, about the body being beautiful, like a tree or a flower, is either a description of the Garden of Eden or a piece of thoroughly bad psychology of which the world grew weary 2,000 years ago. In other words, what he's saying at the end there is, Rome's been there, it's done that, and it hated it. Okay. His point, though, is that the world as we live in, there's something dangerous now about issues of sexuality and gender. Okay. Mark Yarhouse. He says, the method of science can tell us about what occurs and what's measurable, about what people do, and perhaps provide insight into factors that may contribute to impulses and patterns of behavior, as well as broader concepts such as orientation. However, science cannot tell us what ought to be or how we should live, our, uh, live lives or which impulses we should follow. Students who have taken Philosophy 101 will recognize the naturalistic fallacy, that is, the tendency to confuse what is with what ought to be. The questions related to human purpose and morality and ethics have to be answered by more than what we can measure through a scientific method as important as that is. Okay. What he's suggesting here is that this whole idea of just what's natural assumes that nature is in a good place. But as Christians, if the world is broken and we start at that place, we're already off on the wrong track. And so again, we need to start with design. We need to start with purpose, and then we need to run it through the lens of where we actually live. The fall. Okay. One of the ways that Mark Yarhouse applies this in particularly has to do with conflicts of identity. In other words, what do you do when who you are and how you feel and what you desire is different than other aspects of your identity? Primarily, the book that he's writing in is about gender dysphoria, okay, which is the discomfort of feeling uncomfortable with your physical sex. Okay. And so one of the suggestions uh, that our world makes is the best way to resolve that is to take who you are on the inside and align yourself on the outside with it. Okay. The idea is this is who I really am, right? That's the language. That's saying this is what is and therefore it's what should be. But notice how he points out a possible difference. He says there's an understanding of different ways of resolving identity conflicts, which can be understood with reference to different experiences of congruence. Okay, So that takes the disparity of desire and identity and finds a way for them to fit together. Okay? A distinction can be made between organismic congruence and telic congruence. Congruence. Now, organismic there comes from organism, so I think that one's pretty easy. Telic comes from teleos, from purpose. Okay. So two categories, organismic congruence and teleic congruence. Organismic congruence refers to taking cues from one's own impulses as a guide to shaping identity and behavior. It presumes that such impulses are good and helpful resources in identity formation and personal fulfillment. Indeed, much of contemporary clinical psychology is unwittingly based upon such premises, particularly with the influence of Carl Rogers, the quiet revolutionary, whose person-centered approach to counseling and therapy dominated the mental health landscape. But organismic congruence is but one way of achieving congruence. Another way to achieve congruence is telic congruence. Notice what it's like. Telic congruence looks ahead to who one is becoming. It can consider design and purpose both here and now and for the future, and it can be reflected in a person's desire to lay aside or be disciplined in response to impulses in favor of another way of achieving a sense of self, purpose, and identity. A really illus easy illustration of this is exercise. 
Now, there are people who exercise often who tell me they do it because they enjoy it. That is not my experience. Okay. You are free to eat as you eat and live as you live. But if you want to be healthy, if you want to feel good about yourself, some people would suggest, if you want to be able to make it out your front door, then some restrictions you will put on yourself, even though they go against desires that you have. And it's because you have this telic congruence. You see yourself in where you're going. You want to still be able to get out of bed in your old age, right? You want to run the 5K, those types of things. And so you put restraints on your impulses and desires, okay? And so all he's saying is then it's just a misstep to assume that the only way to resolve these things is just to take what we want and make that a definer of what we need, All of this, this whole category of the fall, uh, means that we should respond, if anyone should, with compassion to these issues. Like Jesus, who was a friend of sinners and tax collectors. And don't ever forget that word sinners there is just an idiom for prostitute. Why did Jesus spend time with people like this? Why did he stand in John chapter 8 between the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery and those who wanted to stone her? Why did he speak to her and say, neither do I condemn you? How did he spend his time in, there, uh, in this place? It's because he had compassion on them. What does he say? He says, it's not the healthy that are in need of a physician, but the sick. And I did not come for the righteous, but to, for sinners, to call them to repentance. That is compassion. And it should be modeled by us. We of all people, for example, the gender dysphoric, should go... Yeah, that's a real thing. That's the world we live in. That sounds really hard. Okay. That's what we should expect. So we need to bring the fall into it, but if we, if we only have the fall, not only are we prone to this naturalistic tendency, but we're also prone to settle. Look, the ideals in creation are great, but that's just not realistic. And so we start coming up with ethics that are achievable, but oriented in the right direction. We lower the standard. But the Bible doesn't end with the fall. It's not just God made this really great thing and now it's broken the end. Okay. And that brings us to redemption. Now, when we look at Jesus in Matthew, we don't see redemption in the context of marriage directly, except in maybe his reference to the kingdom of God, those who will make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God. But obviously, Jesus didn't come to teach us about marriage and divorce. And his conversation there is even along the way to his ultimate and final purpose, to die in our place for our sins. And so redemption really is the whole context of the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, I would suggest to you that it's the entire New Testament. The Gospels tell us about how our redemption was accomplished, and the epistles tell us about what was accomplished in our redemption. How many of the epistles go, this is the cross of Christ, and here's what it means for you today? Right? It's an unpacking of what happened there, what God has accomplished for us in Jesus Christ, what it implies for our lives. So redemption is the big thing. In fact, Jesus says that that's true of all scriptures. He condemns the same Pharisees that we started with. He says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have life, but it's they that testify of me. Now, what is he saying there? He's saying that if you're going to interpret the Bible, pick any passage, if you can't connect it with Jesus, you don't understand it. And so redemption is a significant part of this. And what it means for the fall is primarily two things. Like I said, 
The whole Bible tells us what it means. But I just want to draw out two things, okay? The first is that redemption gives us a new identity. First Corinthians chapter 6. Now again, we find a vice list here. I've referenced them before. There's eight of them in the New Testament, and they're basically just a laundry list of sins. But they do have some interesting features. One is that sexual immorality is on the list every single time. Not only that, but two-thirds of them, sexual immorality is on the list more than once in synonymous terms, like sexual immorality and adultery being on the same list. Not only that, but sexual immorality heads the list in six of the eight. Okay, so it's a primary thing. But each vice list is accomplishing something in particular. Like we saw with Jesus, he lists all these sins to tell us where they come from, out of the heart. Here, it's very easy to misunderstand the reason for this vice list. And so let's read it and then look. He says, Or do you not know, speaking to the church in Corinth, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now one thing I want you to notice about this list is unlike many of the other vice lists, these are identity sins and not behavioral sins. He doesn't say drunkenness, he says the drunkard. He doesn't say adultery, he says the adulterer. Okay. Um, but the second thing I want you to notice is that Paul is not drawing a line between inside the church and outside the church and saying there's those people out there and there's these people, he's actually talking about the membership role of the church in Corinth. And that's why he says, and such were some of you. When he says here, don't, don't you know that these people won't inherit the kingdom of God? He's not saying this is the off list. He's saying that's not who you are anymore. In other words, he says in Jesus Christ, they've been given a new identity. As it says here, they were washed, they were sanctified, they were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You no longer are what you were. New identity. Now, to be clear here, when we talk about this concept of justification, the way that we explain that idea biblically is that because Jesus died in our place for our sins and lived a perfect and God-satisfying righteous life in our place, we are justified. God sees us through the righteousness of Jesus and not through our own sins. But that makes us, if we stop there, that makes us feel like we just have a label that says righteous, but we're still the same old person on the inside. The Bible doesn't stop there. When it says we have a new identity, it doesn't merely mean we have a new label or that God sees us through a new lens. It means we have a new enabling in righteousness. We have the Holy Spirit. We have what Peter calls the impartation of the divine nature. We have the ability to righteousness. We have a new place to draw. And so we may have a deceptive heart that evil things come out of, but we also have this new creation reality that we can live out as well. Okay, New identity. But also, when we look at 1 Thessalonians, we see the other half of this, uh, which for now I'll just call sanctification. Sanctification is a calling. So we have a new identity, this is who you really are, and then we have a commitment, live a certain way. Okay. So notice here, Paul says, for this is the will of God. This is one of three places in the New Testament where the Bible just comes out and tells you. 
what God's will for your life is. I know we ask all the time, and what we usually mean is, should I take the job in Arizona or not? Okay. But here, when he says, this is the will of God, he only puts one item on the list. In other words, this isn't a thing God wants of you, it's the thing God wants of you. And he says here, it's your sanctification. Now, whereas justification is positional righteousness, God just sees us as if we were righteous. Sanctification is the making of us righteous. It's the practically living out. Salvation in the New Testament we find in three tenses. You have been saved. That's justification. Your past has changed. Sanctification is you are currently being saved. You are being made more like Jesus. You are being made actually righteous. You are being sanctified. Glorification is your future salvation. You will be saved. Not just from the consequence of your sin, not just from the power of your sin, but from the presence of it at all. Completely eradicated. That's where we're headed. But sanctification, that's why you're still here. That's why your life exists as a Christian. That's why God doesn't just at the end of the sinner's prayer just boom, take you home. He's doing something right now. This is the will of God, your sanctification. And then notice when he decides to illustrate what sanctification looks like, he does it entirely in sexuality. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness. It's another word for sanctification. To live a life of holiness. To reflect the image of the Holy One. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger of all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but for holiness. So not only does he make us new, but he calls us to something new. Purity, holiness. Okay? And we have to maintain these two things together, but there's a challenge here. Okay? Which is that when we talked about sanctification, that is a progressive thing. Meaning it takes a whole life for it to happen, and to be honest, the last step of it is the biggest. Right? The greatest change that will happen in your life will not be between this week and next week. It will be between the moment you close your eyes in death and the moment you open them. Right? But nonetheless, sanctification here is progressive, which means when we measure these things, it's a little bit weird. Because we live in the midst. We live in the reality where we're still in a broken world, and we still have this broken self. That's not all we have. We also have a new identity. We're not yet finished, right? Uh, I love the words of Francis Schaeffer here. I think we should just meditate on them all the time. Because Christ has come, past tense, we should expect substantial healing. Because Christ has not returned, we shouldn't expect complete healing. Jesus is not finished yet. So don't assume that you should be done already. But nonetheless, these two ideas is what it means to be redeemed. And so now we approach sexuality with a fresh start. Not just a second chance, but a new identity that changes the game. And a calling to a particular way of life. A way that rightly reflects God's design. Okay? But we're still not done. The story of the Bible doesn't end at the cross or even in the proclamation of this message, but with an anticipation, an expectation that the one who came and started this work will come back and finish it. And that brings us to consummation. 
Now, to get to consummation in the Gospel of Matthew, we need to turn a few chapters later to Matthew chapter 22. Now, twice here, in Matthew chapter 22, and this is in the last week of Jesus' ministry leading up to his crucifixion, twice here he talks about the concept of marriage. And what I want to show you is in doing so, he actually says what seems at first like contradictory things, but when we process, actually tells us something really important about this category of consummation. So the first one happens later in chapter 22 here. Uh, the Sadducees, another group of religious leaders in the Jewish day, these times these are the, these are, or this time they're the progressive liberals. They don't believe that there's an up and coming resurrection. They don't believe in heaven. They don't believe in angels. Uh, they don't believe in all sorts of things, okay? Um, and so they come and also their intentions here are to trap Jesus specifically by making him foolish. They know that Jesus believes both in the requirements of righteous living in the Old Testament, right? I didn't come to overthrow the law, but to fulfill it, and in this up-and-coming reality of a resurrection. And so they put these things at odds by creating a hypothetical that makes belief in an afterlife sound silly. And here's the hypothetical. What if a woman marries seven different husbands consecutively, all of them brothers, and doesn't have any kids by any of them? In heaven, whose wife is she? See, either Jesus has to enforce divine polygamy or the resurrection is incompatible with God's design for marriage. Okay? So they ask this question, they lay it all out, and look at Jesus' response. He says, but Jesus answered them, you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Now here's what's really interesting. The Sadducees only hold to the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the works of Moses. And when he says here, you were wrong not knowing the scriptures, he doesn't go to the rest of the Bible. He plays on their own turf. He goes to Genesis. But what I want to draw your attention to is the aside he makes here. He says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. He says, you're wrong because marriage won't be a thing in heaven. He says, it's a non-issue. In other words, Jesus looks at the end, the resurrection, the consummation of all things, and he says, if you want to understand it, scratch marriage off the list. This is actually an interesting tendency in the New Testament to talk about the future. Sometime read Revelation chapter 21 and unline all the things that won't be in heaven because that's where the focus is. Okay? But here he says, if you want to understand Jesus coming back, marriage is temporary. Gosh, that is such a huge idea for us as human beings and as Christians. Culturally, we think of singleness as temporary and marriage as permanent. Jesus says, no, it's the marriage that's temporary. Singleness is the permanent state. It's how you're born and it's how you'll be in heaven. Okay. That's kind of an interesting, profound idea. Um, and that definitely should relativize the way we think about these matters. In fact, look at Paul here in Corinthians chapter 7. Here, Paul takes his own life of singleness and celibacy and he presents it as an option to a bunch of engaged couples and says, you should really consider this because I'm pretty sure my way is better. Okay? We don't always spend a lot of time in this chapter, and we should. We have a tendency, in fact, I would suggest to you that because of the sexual revolution, Christians, again, trying to maintain a sexual ethic, over-elevated marriage and have forgotten significant truths. But notice what he says here. Concerning the betrothed, I have no commandment from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. 
And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Now, he begins here by just saying, considering what's happening right now, you probably should hold off on getting married. Most commentators believe this is either a famine or persecution. In other words, life is harder married or with children in hard circumstances. It's one thing to be a martyr for Jesus. It's another thing to watch your children slaughtered in front of you. It's one thing to be starving. It's another thing to watch your children starve. Okay? But he goes on and he presses way beyond that. Look at what he says here. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they have none. Do you see what Paul's doing here? He takes that future vision of Jesus and he starts to bleed it into the presence. He relativizes what is because of what will be. In fact, it's not just marriage. He continues, those who mourn as though they were not mourning, those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with it, uh, and, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealing with it. Look at the reason. For the present form of this world is passing away. Marriage is a fading reality in human life. We live in this now, but not yet, and so there's a sense where a day is... Uh, the opposite of dawning. I can't even think of what it is, right? The day is ending. And at the same time, the new one is so close to dawn that sun is reflecting back and somehow singleness is now a viable option now because of where we're headed. In other words, he sees singleness and celibacy as a prophetic act. But more importantly here, he's addressing people who are considering marriage and he says, hold off here. Even if you're married, there's a way where you should think of it as not being married. Not finally, not fully, not totally. Now, another thing we should point out here is that when Jesus comes back, our bodies and our desires will be fully restored. Consummation means that what went wrong will be fully set right. It means that those senses of incongruence will no longer be incongruent. It means that the struggle of life will be over. In fact, notice here it says, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We read that earlier, but notice, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruit of spirits, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Two things there. One, a mark of being a Christian is feeling the weight of what's wrong in life with the world as things are. Okay. In fact, I would suggest to you it's a mark of Christian maturity and not immaturity to be groaning and frustrated with your sins. When, G when Paul says in Romans 7, the things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I do. Woe is me, who will deliver me from this body of death? That is right and deep understanding of where we're at. It's a longing. It's Maranatha. It's come, Lord Jesus. Second, I want you to notice that this adoption as our sons is the redemption of our bodies. The salvation that the New Testament talks about is not merely a spiritual salvation, but a physical one. In fact, it's not just your physical redemption of your broken bodies being set right, but the broken world we live in, becoming a new heavens and a new earth, and creation is longing for it and groaning for it and waiting for it. Okay. But here's the other thing. Back in Matthew, same chapter, chapter 22, just before he has this conversation with the Pharisees, Jesus gives a parable. And it's a kingdom parable, which means in this parable, Jesus says, if you want to understand what heaven is like, and then he gives a picture. And notice what the picture is. Jesus again spoke to them in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding. What? 
in a few minutes from now, Jesus is going to have another conversation. And he says, when you think of the resurrection, don't think of marriage. And then he says, if you want to understand marriage, think of a wedding. How do we fit these two ideas together? They're, they're you know, side by side in the gospel of Matthew. And this is not just a one-off. Jesus constantly and regularly connects his ministry to marriage. He refers to himself as the bridegroom. John the Baptist sees himself as the helper of the groom. Right? In other parables, he talks about this idea of marriage. The first sign he performs in the Gospel of John, his coming out party, if you will, where he says, if you want to understand what I'm about, here's what proves it. Listen here. The wedding of Cana, where Jesus makes water wine. Listen to uh, Timothy Keller's thinking here. Down to it. Wedding, wedding, wedding. Wedding, wedding, wedding. Here we go. Consider that this, the wedding at Cana, is the very beginning of Jesus' career, his first recorded miracle. Very beginning of Jesus' career of his public ministry. Imagine that you're a candidate for office, an entrepreneur launching a brand, or a musician releasing your first major recording. In every case, you would choose your first public presentation with enormous care. Each detail will be carefully controlled so that every single thing you say and do will convey the message of what you're all about. But look at this calling card, as it were, of Jesus. Nobody's dying. Nobody's possessed by demons. Nobody's starving. Why would Jesus decide that a quintessential signifier of all he is about would be to keep a party going? Why would his first miracle, a signifying miracle according to John, use supernatural power to bring a lot of great wine to sustain the festivities? Why would he do that? It's because he wants to say, if you want to understand what I'm about, this is it. And as he says in Matthew 22, the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding. And it's not just Jesus. His disciples follow suit. And so in Revelation, when John is seeing the consummation of all things, what does he label it? And I saw Jerusalem descending out of heaven like a bride adorned for its husband. And he says, rejoice, everybody. All those are blessed who will be in attendance of the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the big conclusion. That's where the Bible is headed. But again, I would suggest the best place for us to look at this is not just Revelation, but Ephesians. Remember we talked about this earlier? We saw the same moral logic. Paul says, husbands behave like this to your wives. Wives behave like this to your husbands. And he quotes Genesis 2.24. And then what does he say? Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It's not just if you want to understand heaven, you have to understand marriage. Here it's in the beginning, the design, the purpose of marriage is somehow to tell us about God's big plan for Jesus in the world. That's the suggestion that Paul makes here. In other words, what I'm telling you is that marriage is designed to image something. Sex and gender is designed to image something. And it's all leading to the real something. That's why there's a relativizing of the things that are. Because these ones are passing away, but that one's forever. Because these things are a shadow, and that's the reality. Because this one is the sign, and that one is the thing that's being signified. Okay. Now here's why this matters. It means that talking about experiencing God's design and plan for sex and gender is a good thing, and a good thing that is designed to show the best thing. Okay. And so some of us, are going to experience in some ways in our life 
the sign. Others of us are going to bypass it. But the truth is, for those who have right now marriage, sexual fulfillment, living out gender as it's supposed to be, all of those things, it'll always fall short of what it points to. That's why you can't be self-satisfied in it. That's why you can't just sit down and settle there. And for those who don't have, they don't miss out on the ultimate reality. Remember that Paul says this not to single people as a consolation prize. He doesn't say, hey, you know, if you're single, at least you're married to Jesus. He says, married people, don't ever forget that this, what, this marriage is actually about the marriage. There's a balancing here, okay? This is so important to us to understand, but it also helps us to see the big trajectory. And this is where I'll finish tonight. Because now we see that the purpose and design as it flows through the image of God is to show what is to come. And we're going to do this every night as we look at issues of sex and gender. We're going to say, what does this show us about who God is and the relationship he desires to have with his people? But when we do this and we put it all together, we have a comprehensive, a robust Christian sexual ethic. Okay? Without creation, we'll be too pragmatic. Right? We'll make the naturalistic fallacy. We'll just say, how does life work? And then we'll just go about it that without asking, how was it supposed to be? But if we leave out the fall, we'll be too naive. And we'll just go, just suck it up. This is the way it's supposed to be. Not realizing how many things have gone wrong. If we leave out redemption, it's hopeless. It's just the disparity between what should be and what is. And if we leave out consummation, then it becomes too ultimate. If our talks of sex and gender end with how we express sex and gender in this life, and that's a certifying qualification that makes us have the good life, as opposed to the bad life, we've missed it. We have to have consummation. On the other hand, if we just focus on one of these, creation again is too idealistic. The fall is too negative. That's why some of these great Calvinists in history, like Augustine, didn't have anything good to say about sex. Because sex for them was just a dirty sin. He couldn't say that sex and gender was good. In fact, he says in one place in his postulations that before the fall, Adam and Eve must have been able to procreate in another way. He can't imagine sex as being God's method for procreation. Okay. Uh, but if we just talk about redemption, it becomes too disconnected. It's just, it's just Jesus and salvation and the sinner's prayer, but it means nothing about our sexuality. It means nothing about the world we live in. And if it's just consummation, then let's just sell our property and sit on a hill and skywatch, right? It becomes too otherworldly. It doesn't say anything about how we live our life or what it all means. But together, I would suggest to you this is the way the pieces work. Creation operates as our compass. It tells us true north. It shows us design and purpose and helps us get our bearings. The fall tells us our starting place on our journey. And none of us starts at the finish line. And none of us starts at the same place. But because of that, the fall reminds us, okay, what are all the pieces involved in where I actually am right now? Redemption gives us our transportation. And I've chosen that word very intentionally. Redemption is not the map. God's plan for salvation wasn't here are instructions to find your way home. God sent a vehicle to bring us home. Think of Jesus in the 99 and going after the lost sheep and taking it on his shoulder and carrying it home and throwing a party. That's how salvation works. And so however it is we're going to live a righteous life, it's going to be through what Jesus provides. And then finally, consummation keeps in mind our destination. So we don't make the mistake, going back to my illustration here, 
of sitting down at the sign and going, this is it, I've arrived. No, you haven't. You may come to a better understanding of where you're headed through fulfillment, but you also come to a better understanding of where you're headed through longing. Just because you don't experience these things doesn't disconnect you from that coming reality because it cultivates that longing, it cultivates that desire, it cultivates that prayer. How long, O oh Lord? They both get us there, okay? So that's the framework. It's amazing how in two hours' time we've literally changed the conversation. Questions that you have you now realize are misguided questions. Things that you've settled for you now realize you shouldn't stop there but have other questions to ask. And most importantly, we can avoid these oversimplifications when we say the Bible is clear and what we mean is a single verse somewhere that makes a statement, which comes off as being condemning, uh, which comes off as being unpractical, which comes off as, like Jesus says, putting all sorts of rules and regulations on a person and not lifting a finger to help. And most importantly, which does not come off as good news. And the good news is not just Jesus died for us as sinners. It's Jesus died for us and that sets everything right and it's going somewhere that God designed and it's amazing. It's a holistic and big story that we tell.